0: This is Taste for Tenacity, show number seven. What sort of shifted your outlook on finances?
1: Okay. So there's two components to that. One, I'm very ambitious. I always have been. So I wanted to be the best financial analyst that could be. I wanted to be really good at my job. So I did a lot of self-study on like, how do I be, be better at finance? Which turned up this concept of personal finance and financial independence. I discovered the concept of personal finance. The second motivating factor for me was Dish Network was not a high employee satisfaction place to work and it was not regarded as such in a lot of areas. But I also felt that there wasn't a lot of opportunity for me to realize my ambition at the company and move through the ranks. My path was clearly laid out.
0: What's going on, everybody? My name is Ben Trella, and this is Taste for Tenacity. This week, I'm joined by Scott Trench. Scott is the CEO over at Bigger Pockets, which is a social media and networking site for real estate investors. This week, we chat in depth about personal finance, and this is one of the most important shows that we've done so far, and it's one that I've been excited to do for a long time. Now, I know personal finance doesn't sound like an incredibly engaging or important topic, but this is seriously one of the most important shows that we've done so far. We get into some technicals, and there are a lot of terms we throw around uh, near the middle of the show. Uh, But afterwards, please stick around because we get into some general conversation that's really, really valuable. With that being said, let's get to the show. All right. With that, Scott, welcome to the show. (laughs) Well, thanks. It's good to be here. Definitely. Uh, So let's kind of dive right into it. Where did you start from? What's kind of your background for me?
1: Sure. So I kind of had a traditional upbringing. I think in a suburb of Baltimore, Maryland. So right between Baltimore and DC, grew up in a fairly middle upper middle class household. Um, certainly, uh, never had struggles putting food on the table or going broke. Those were never concerns growing up. So relative privilege there. Um, I w- I went to a top public high school. It was you know the whole I was very into sports, big athlete, all that kind of stuff, and then okay. went to Vanderbilt. In Nashville, Tennessee.
0: Okay, nice. What did you study while you were at Vanderbilt?
1: So I studied economics and finance. And I was also um, captain of the rugby club and uh, very involved in my fraternity, which had a very specific interest uh, (laughs) in the business front. So I I definitely spent a lot of time having a, a good time in college. While getting that degree, I did reasonably well. But I think my priorities were probably misplaced and a little... Heavily in that in the having funds. <laughs> yeah, it's always, it's always easy to see that in hindsight, right? Yeah. Um, well, perhaps, perhaps more helpful to, to this discussion, some piece yeah. about the upbringing is my, my parents both worked the same jobs their entire lives, their entire adult lives. Out of college, my mother uh, was a, is a nurse, an oncology nurse. She got a job at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, wow, uh, okay. Department. And she has been there for the entirety of her career as a nurse. My father got a job with an engineering firm as a chemical engineer, and he has been at that same firm with the same title, doing the same type of work that he loves and is passionate about, one of the best in the world, in uh, for thirty years. Wow. So both of my parents have a very traditional, long-term approach with high loyalty to their professions uh, and the and the companies that have employed them. And then in college, probably a key point from there is at Vanderbilt, I was surrounded by very privileged, very children of. You know, college kids of great privilege, right? So there's a, a lot of wealth going around, particularly within my fraternity and some of the social circles I hung out in. Um, I certainly didn't grow up poor, but I didn't have the ability to. You know, my view on money wasn't as some of my peers was. Yeah, whenever my bank account gets low, my father's secretary just deposits more money into it. You know, I'm going to wow. buy rounds for everybody. So I had a, you know. Those are probably two kind of key things to keep in mind when you're thinking about my career track and career development. I saw this extreme loyalty from my parents in their careers, and I saw this extreme privilege that I felt that I was not able to participate in. It was somewhat motivating for me amongst my peers at school.
0: Okay. So how did that then kind of shape what you looked for in a career out of college?
1: Sure. So, uh, going out of college, I took an internship at Dish Network, um, and the internship was uh, a good experience. Um, okay. I had a, I went with a it was it, I went with a couple of my friends from college, and there was forty college kids in a hotel with all expenses paid and biggest paychecks for many of us of our lives that we'd ever been receiving. So you were training. living the high life at that point. <laughs> we were living the high life, yes. We had a great time. We There's a lot of fun shenanigans and good times and all that kind of stuff in Denver, Colorado uh, with, with this job at DISH. And they offered me, after that internship, a full-time position in finance, which is what I wanted. But okay. I corporate. I, I've been studying economics and history and then corporate strategy and finance as a minor. So economics and history was a dual major, not a double okay. It's like a two-part major. Economics. Gotcha. And then... Corporate strategy was one minor and finance was another minor. So double hmm. minor, dual major. Not So I wasn't this crazy overachiever, but I definitely graduated with a handful of degrees. Um, finance is what I wanted. And I got offered that job probably in the first two weeks of my senior year. So oh, like wow. I said, and so I didn't have to worry about the the job hunt that a lot of other seniors had. So again, you can see a trend here of me... Having a good time and not kind of passively accepting the first opportunity that came up with this, with this job. Um, after that college year, I graduated and I went, took a trip to Europe and blew all the rest of my money, um, having a great time in Europe. Yeah. So uh, I actually get serious, I think, about life and finances in August of 2013 after okay. I graduate and take my trip to Europe. And that's when I start full time at, at Dish Network in my first job.
0: Okay, so what sort of shifted your outlook on finances? What, what kind of made you click into a more
1: serious mode? Okay, so there's two components to that. One, I wanted to be the best. I'm very ambitious, I always have been. So I wanted to be the best financial analyst that could be, right? <laughs> so I wanted to be really good at my job. So I did a lot of self-study on like, how do I be, be better at finance, mm-hmm. right? Which turned up this concept of personal finance and financial independence downstream. In research, I was looking at to do better at my job I discovered the concept of personal finance. The second, I think, motivating factor for me was Dish Network was not a high employee satisfaction place to work. And hmm. it was not regarded as such in a lot of areas. I didn't feel that too badly. It wasn't a horrible experience. But I also felt that there wasn't a lot of opportunity for me to realize my ambition at the company and move through the ranks. My path was clearly laid hmm. out. Um, actually, one one kind of at the time, big driver in my mind was, I came in and thought I was a financial analyst one. And instead, <laughs> when I was, I was like associate financial. and instead, and I, and I was looking forward to a year later, getting a promotion to financial analyst two. This was my ambition. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, kicking and, in. Yeah. And instead I got told, no, we're actually going to revise your current title to, to associate financial analyst and then promote you to financial analyst one and give you a raise. How about that? And I was like, well, that, for whatever reason, just destroyed my, my ego at the time. That was a gut punch. Yeah. I was, I was, a little, I was very frustrated about that. Um, but anyways, before that, I had realized, hey, that's my best case scenario is moving up this, this ladder. Um, and I just didn't think that that was a very good outcome. So I became very interested in my self-study and, and my frustration at not having lots of advancement opportunities and ability to drive value as uh, the way that I wanted. I became very interested in this concept of financial independence, financial freedom. Through two primary sources, right? So there's a couple of things that probably introduced me to financial freedom, but the two primary drivers were Mister Money Mustache and BiggerPockets.com. I was a very big fan of both of those platforms uh, in my first year out of college at that job at Dish Network.
0: Okay, so you've you've kind of thrown out these these two interchangeable um, interchangeable words or phrases, uh, personal finance. And financial independence. Could you kind of define those a little more clearly for for any of the listeners?
1: Yeah, personal finance I think is just any the the broad umbrella of managing your personal finances. So you know that can mean anything from saving ten percent, putting in a four hundred one k, and the study of just kind of making basic appropriate decisions that any responsible middle-class American should be making. And then financial freedom, I think, is in financial independence. I'll typically refer to it as financial freedom. So I'm sorry if I refer to it as financial independence. That's all good. My I, I wrote a book on this. So my editor forced me to pick one term to use. It's early financial freedom that I have picked. There's no particular reason for that term other than I had to pick one. Okay, so
0: I'll make sure to clarify that in the show notes too. It's financial freedom in our usage.
1: But the financial freedom component, I think is about being very aggressive and intentional around the four pillars of personal finance, which are spending as little as possible on your ongoing repeatable lifestyle expenses, earning as much active income as you possibly can, investing your accumulated assets at the highest possible rates of return and then creating assets or building businesses you know there's the same thing so yeah. that that i think is the the difference between the two is one's a much more stating a much more aggressive approach to building wealth but it's still personal finance gotcha okay
0: cool so you you started dish network and you kind of realized that it wasn't a high employee morale environment. It wasn't um, really suited to the ambitions you were looking for. So what, what did you start to look for next? Did you stick in that job uh, at DISH for a long time or did you start to look elsewhere?
1: Well, the, the goal was financial freedom. So the, the, question, the question in my mind uh, by month seven or eight, for sure, probably by month three or four at DISH was, how do I become financially free as rapidly as possible? And I remember forget one of my coworkers said to me, because I thought brought up the topic, and he was like, You're not gonna get rich sitting in that chair right there doing this job. No chance. So if you're huh. not gonna get rich, this isn't it. Right. And yeah. I remember that just completely stuck with me. And I realized, hey, I'm, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna get rich, or if I'm gonna achieve financial freedom, um, I'm going to need to be more aggressive about my earned income, reducing my expenses, investing appropriately, and all that kind of stuff. So I, in the course of that year, began saving very aggressively. I saved up about $20,000, $25,000. Um, I came in with about $3,000, um, took advantage of employee matches, and then moonlighted by driving Uber and tutoring and all that kind of stuff. So okay. I saved twenty to $25,000 between August 2013 and October, November 2014 on a $48,000 per year salary by Jeez. busting it. Um, yeah. In that same period, I also switched jobs. So I joined this tiny startup that I was a big fan of called Bigger Pockets in July of 2014. And okay. I applied some of the money that I'd been saving to my first house hack, which is a duplex. So you can see the all out aggression on three fronts in this journey to financial freedom on that, right? I spent almost nothing. I earned as much as I could, which was relatively limited to low paying gig jobs after hours. I got a new job. At, a, at another business that I thought had more scalable income potential um, and just opportunities, and I liked the job better. <laughs> <at> the <time. laughs> and then I also made a serious commitment and investment in buying a duplex with basically all of the cash I had saved up over the course of that year uh, in Denver, Colorado.
0: Okay, nice. So, can we kind of dive? There's, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, can we first start kind of addressing what's a, what's a house hack?
1: Uh, and how did that really juice your saving in that first year and going forward? Sure. So you know, I'm, I'm thinking, how do I spend as little money as possible so I can get more cash so that I can buy real significant assets, right? I, if you're trying to achieve early oh. financial freedom, and you're saving five thousand dollars and investing in index funds. You're going to be at it for a very long time, right? I need to generate serious cash that I could apply to advancing my position, and I need to do that in and, and I need to apply that very aggressively if I want to have a shot at this thing. So I. Um, the house hack, if you look at your expenses, or at least if you look at my expenses at that time, my largest expense was rent. I'm sure that's, the, that's true of many people that are listening to this podcast or just on the journey of finance in, in general. Yeah. And what I figured was that, hey, if I could not pay rent anymore, I'm going to be in an incredible situation where I can much more aggressively generate cash towards this goal of financial freedom. And Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets at the time had written this, had announced this novel term that had never before been invented called a house hack. I'm sure people have been doing house hack for a long time, but the term house hacking, I remember I saw that and I read this article on like how to hack your housing and get paid to live for free. And I remember being, that's it. That's the pathway to becoming financially free as soon as possible because not only am I going to be living for free and generating lots more cash, as soon as I move out after a year, I'm going to have a cash-like rental property. So what I did is I put $12,000 down, 5% down on a $240,000 duplex in Northeast Denver. I moved in, fixed up both units, got a roommate in one half and tenants in the other half. My total rent from those sources was $1,150 plus $550, $1,700. Okay. And my mortgage payment was $1,550. So mm-hmm. I'm not living for free after like some of the, the utilities and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. But I'm really close, right? Yeah. And that is a massive improvement over the $650 a month I had been paying previously for rent in an apartment. So my financial position dramatically began accelerating at that point. Coupled with the fact that after I closed on that in November of 2014, which is four months after I joined Bigger Pockets, man, I'm going fast here. So you can yeah, you're hauling. I'm keeping I'm up not. with it. Yeah, yeah. So that was four months after I joined Bigger Pockets. So between that house hack and the starting to scale commission income I got as a sales guy at Bigger Pockets, I'm starting to pick up my financial position heading into mid 2015. My gotcha. state probably goes from like. 1500 or 2000 a month to like that $3,000, 3500 a month range in that period of time.
0: Gotcha. So house hacking is really this concept of buying a multifamily property, typically two to four units, uh, because you can still get that with a traditional mortgage. You don't have to go commercial or anything like that. It's buying a duplex, triplex, or quad, living in one unit, renting out any extra bedrooms in that bedrooms in that one and then leveraging those other units to really lower your expenses as much as possible. Because like you said, typically one of the highest dollar amount and percentage expenses that we have is our housing.
1: Sound about right? That's exactly right. Yes. I think it's, I think it's the single most powerful tool accessible to a median wage earner with less than $20,000 $20, in liquidity that they can make to move toward financial independence. Starting a business is impractical for that person, right? You can yeah. start a business in their part time after hours, they can moonlight, but you're mm-hmm. probably not going to earn more per hour moonlighting than you do at your full time job in most cases, at least not in a sustainable way. Um, you have no investment assets to deploy in like stocks in a significant way. Yeah. And, you know, your major expense is your housing. So I feel like there's a- always alternatives to things, but for a lot of people, it's going to be perhaps the most practical choice. To make a giant leap forward on the path to financial freedom.
0: Okay, so you said one of you, you started at a tiny little startup called Bigger Pockets. What besides just liking it? What drew
1: you to working there specifically? Um. Well, so it was a little bit serendipitous and a little bit fanboyish. So I was a big fan of the site. I've been listening to the podcast for six months, perhaps or so, and I met. Uh, on the advice of the podcast, I joined a networking group, a mastermind group of local real estate entrepreneurs. And I had no business being in this group. I just bugged them until they let me in. Um, <laughs> There's a little bit more serendipity and luck. But I had no business being in this group. I was 22 or 23 at the time. And these guys are all entrepreneurs that are 5, 6, 10 years into their entrepreneurial journeys, Yeah, 20 years into their careers. And I remember being feeling very privileged to just be there, being able to be in the room and be a sponge and absorb stuff. And I took every single one of them out to lunch individually to get to know them. Mm -hmm. And in in one of those lunches, uh, this is while still working at Dish. Yeah. I met this guy, and he worked at a co working space called Thrive in Denver, Mm -hmm. Colorado. Oh, I, the whole thing is in Denver, Colorado. I don't know why I just felt the need to mention that. But <laughs> the, the, you know, I met this guy, uh, and in the th- co-working space, I see in the corner the Bigger Pockets logo, and I recognize Josh, my face from the podcast. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Bigger Pockets. I'm a huge fan of them. Say hello. So There's go the knock, fanboy. Yep. Yeah, I go knock on the door, say hello to Josh, and he tells me to go away, stop bothering. <laughs> so I follow up like probably six more times, um, asking him to lunch, all that kind of stuff, and he, he kind of says like, what do you do? I'm like I'm an analyst. I'm like, you know, I would love to come work for you, Josh, on the weekends for free if I can meet investors or whatever. He says, "Analyst, come in for an interview." Uh, so I interview for a director of operations role at this two-person company hmm. by Josh Dorkin and Brandon Turner. Okay, operations at a startup means you just eat all of the garbage uh, at the business. You just do all the jobs that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That no one else wants to do. You're the firefighter. Forever. Yeah. So I, I did that for the last five, four or five years um, as the operations guy uh, at Bigger Pockets prior to some events that we may get to later in the discussion. Okay. Awesome. Now, you also kind of mentioned something in passing
0: that I do want to draw attention to. Uh, you said there was a lot of luck and serendipity involved. How would you define luck? How, how did, what is it? I mean, I know there's there's a n- number of different definitions, but how do you view that?
1: Um, well, okay, so so I guess you know if I were to trace this whole butterfly effect that led me to this position back to a single event, um, I had a friend who had a dog. Okay, I see where this is going. This is a long path. To this. Let's uh, do it. She and she had a bad knee, and I felt bad for this dog. I felt like it needed to get run in order mm-hmm. to get exercise, and I also liked the dog because it was an adorable little puppy. That I thought would help me make conversation with girls at the park. Naturally. So I <laughs> nobly decided to walk this dog for no reason that wasn't selfless at all at the park and was totally unsuccessful in my goal of meeting girls, I guess, with this. Yeah. But I did sit down on a bench to rest and get into a conversation with this elderly gentleman hmm. about stock investing, which had been an interest of mine at the time in addition to real estate. And we got going and going and talked about it for maybe an hour. We just wow. talked about stock investing. And he invited me along to that mastermind group, or he mentioned it. And I followed up and I was like, I insisted, hey, can I come along to this? Please, I want to you know, do it. So I joined that mastermind group as a result of that conversation, as a result of that day at the park, as a result of trying to walk the dog and meet <laughs> girls and joined in that. Now, that's luck, right? Yeah. That string of events I just described to you and your listeners is one piece of luck after another leading down the pipes the piece that is not luck about that is the fact that i had been interested self studying real estate investing stocks was constantly talking about it to everyone who would listen annoying strangers about this and an opportunity resulted from me continuously showing my interest along these lines right i feel like if that hadn't happened i might not be at bigger pockets i might not have had uh, all of the success that i've kind of had over yeah. the last couple of years, but I probably would have had an opportunity elsewhere, or a series of opportunities that would have eventually led to success in a different set of departments, just by constantly being out there and talking about the, those topics that I was interested in hmm. to as many people as possible. So yeah. how's that for an answer about that? That? Is, that was a fun tangent to
0: get to the answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> OK, cool. So so you start at BP, at bigger pockets. You're the director of operations. So you're fighting fires left and right. Uh, what, what else did that experience kind of unfold into?
1: Um, well the the ride over the last couple of years, let's start in middle 2015, has been pretty incredible. So um, our our my my function that scaled a little bit was advertising sales. So I built I I, I helped grow that from a seven or eight thousand dollar a month income stream to about an eighty to ninety thousand dollar a month income wow. stream um, as the as the point salesperson on that, and mm-hmm. I also took over. So that was kind of like my specific, um, like revenue piece. Yeah. that I was contributing. Um, so you know, all the ads you listen to in the podcast, those those are my fault. Um, <laughs> the the uh, I also kind of had a lot of things to do with our finance department. Um, I oversaw support. Oversaw our publishing department, which has grown to become a, a very large business stream. Um, in particular, shout out to Katie Miller, who um, directs that department and, is, and has done a really phenomenal job, really scaling that in the last couple of years. Um, I, I kind of did a lot of different parts of the business with the exception of our pro membership for a long, long time. I was not okay. really the, the driver of the pro member of, of our subscription model. Okay. Um, so I don't know if I'm helping being very helpful here just over the years, we hired more people and yeah. I assumed more and more management responsibility and more and more responsibility for various big business segments over that time horizon.
0: Yeah. Cause you had been around for a little while at that point and you, you were selling the business. So you must've known the, the whole company inside and out.
1: Yeah. So that I, I, I think I really had a really, you know, I'll never have the same perspective as Josh who founded the business. Right. Uh, But I I feel like I have a pretty good analytical deep dive into what goes on at Bigger Pockets and how we can provide value to our customers and users and listeners and all that kind of stuff, and how we can grow in the future. And that, you know, I took on more and more responsibility in line with that. In November 2017, our founder, Josh, stepped away uh, from his role as a full time CEO Mm -hmm. uh, and named me as president. In February. So for November, to, 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 November 2017 to February 2018, okay. um, I was kind of acting president and then I became that officially in February. Um, and then I led a process in 2018 to recapitalize the business. Okay. Are you, are you familiar with that term? Let's, let's dive into it. Okay. So that means that we recapitalize the capital structure, the ownership structure of the business changes, right? Yep. So I won't share. What that was, or the valuations, yeah, or anything like that. Definitely. I, did, I helped Josh, I think, produce a successful outcome for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we brought on an investor, uh, uh, a private equity firm called McCarthy Capital out of Omaha, Nebraska, in mm-hmm. November of 2017. And following that, I became the CEO of Bigger Pockets
0: wow.
1: uh, and lead operations today.
0: Well, congrats on that promotion. That's, that's a good one to have.
1: Oh, thanks. Yes. It was, it's been a, a fun and wild ride and I, I absolutely love my job. So it's a, it's a good privilege to be here with that. And like I said, a lot of luck involved and a lot of hard work and, and taking advantage of those opportunities as well.
0: Yeah. And I think something too that, that again, kind of passed, slipped by in passing is that you love what you do. And that's really important because you're dedicating at least 40 hours a week if you're in a standard role, but way more than that. Um, and if you're somewhere you prefer versus you know, your first analyst job, that's got to be a totally different side of the spectrum.
1: Yeah, I think, I think so. I think, um, I, I think that liking what you do is very important. And I think that liking what you do is inversely correlated to your net worth position in many cases. So if you don't have a lot of liquidity, if you're not saving money, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you are eventually going to be stuck in a role that you cannot leave because you're probably nobody is like not optimizing on the income front. Yeah, right? almost everybody. If you're working a job, you're taking a job that's at or near your maximum income potential relative to the amount you want to work. So maybe you're not yeah. going to work 100 hours and make, you know, double. But if you're working 40 hours, you're going with basically the highest bidder that you can get. Yeah, uh, as as an employee for the most part. If you're spending everything that you earn, that's going to be the, the truth for you for the entirety of your career. If you mm-hmm. have a 50% savings rate, if you're spending less than half of what you earn, no way are you going to be stuck at a job that is just terrible forever. You're going to be able to leave and pounce the first opportunity that comes up like I did um, with with my first job. So yeah. I think that there's an inverse correlation between that savings rate and how much you like your job. You won't <sighs> long-term be stuck at a job if you don't need the money to easily get by.
0: Definitely. So, so two things going off of that. One, this kind of takes us back to the beginning of the conversation where we really said how important building a, a strong personal financial position is because it's what allows you to take on those new opportunities and really do what you love doing. Like you said, it's kind of inversely proportional to how much you love what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And on the other side too, I'm going to lose my train of thought real quick. But yeah, so that's, that's a really important spot to be in because, oh, and then on the other side, you mentioned a 50% uh, savings rate. What's so uniquely powerful about that number in particular?
1: The reason I like the 50% savings rate is because if you're saving at a 50% rate, you're going to accumulate one year of liquidity that you can use to pursue the next opportunity in one year. Does that make yeah. sense? So yeah, I'm that saying, makes
0: perfect sense.
1: So let's say I earn 100 grand. Let's say I earn 50 grand, right? Okay. So I earn 50 grand and I'm saving at a 10% rate per year. I'm going to save $5,000 over the course of a year, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that. There's a lot of tax and 401k stuff in there, but I'm yeah. talking about after tax wealth accumulation. Cash savings that you Cash see in your savings. account. Exactly. Stuff that you will actually intend to spend to advance your position, seize an opportunity, buy a house, house hack, whatever it is. Um, not something that you've written off as retirement for 50 years later. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm talking strict cash accumulation in your after-tax spendable account. Definitely. That number, if you're accumulating $5,000 a year and a $50,000 income, it's going to take you... That means you're spending $45,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Right? This is all after-tax. So... Bear with me. Yeah. i can give you a model if you want it for what that looks like from tax versus pre-tax and post-tax. Okay. After tax income is k. dollars you spend forty-five. dollars it's going to take you nine years to build up one year of what I call financial runway, right? You could not survive without a, without a, wage, without a wage income for one year until nine years have passed at that savings rate. Mm-hmm. If you have a 50% savings rate, you're going to save $25,000. That means that you only spend $25,000 a year. And you saved more money, five, yeah. five, times, five times more money, and you need almost 50%, what's called 60% of the $45,000 number, right? So mm-hmm. that, that, that number is extremely powerful. Why 50%? That's an arbitrary number 45, 55, 60, 70, 30. It doesn't really matter in that, as long as you grasp that concept that each percentage point more that you save is exponentially driving you towards freedom and opportunity. Uh, faster than the guy who's saving at a very low marginal rate.
0: Yeah. So that savings rate really works both sides of the equation. It's your spending. So for the 50% you're saving, there's 50% you're spending. Uh, If you're saving 55, you're spending 45%, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. But by increasing that savings rate, you're decreasing your spending rate, which then allows that extra dollar that you save to go a little bit farther. And as you said, it
1: grows exponentially with every dollar you save. That's right. Your friend, the ability to accumulate runway, um, to, with which to seize opportunity, explore. You know, just have freedom from bad situations or insure against risk. That I think is the key for people who are starting out. If you're thinking about doing any type of entrepreneurship or any type of serious investing, you're just not going to reasonably be. You're going to have to get lucky rather than have a controllable path towards it. If you don't master that single component of this early on the more you spend, the more likely you are to be trapped in a job that's going to consume most of your hours um, and not allow for other things. So it's really about that savings rate, I think, for, for people that are getting started in, in terms of generating opportunities. I would not be here today if I spent, most, if I spent more than 60-70% of what I earned. Yeah. So that's,
0: that, was, that was a fun...
1: fun rabbit. I love that topic. I'll, I'll, I'll preach about that all day.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of you wrote, wrote a book on it, um, books called Set for life. Uh, and I'm going to link to that in the show notes as well. Oh, thanks for the plug. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's, it's a, a really great book. I love it. I read it when I was first, uh, first starting to explore personal finance and it really breaks it up into three it breaks building a financial position up into three chunks. Um, could you walk through those a little bit for me, and what's so important about each
1: step? Sure. So and, and, and as a caveat here, you know, I you, if you can't tell already after thirty minutes here, I am very aggressive and very enthusiastic about the concept of financial freedom, and I'm probably going to turn you off if you're looking for a more, you know, Relaxed approach to going about this, right? If you're looking for, yeah. like, hey, how do I use a 10% savings rate and eke out a solid return and all that kind of stuff? I'm not, I'm not a good resource for you. Mm-hmm. Mine's kind of like an all out aggressive approach. It assumes that you're starting with zero, uh, you know, almost no, basically no net worth and a median income. And how does that person aggressively pursue financial freedom and build a position of several hundred thousand dollars in net worth with several thousand dollars a month in passive income? the foundation from which you can kind of explore lots of cool opportunities. How do you do that as rapidly as possible? So there's three steps, as you mentioned. The first is that $25,000, right? You have a 50% savings rate, get your savings rate in place, pack your lunch, think about biking to work, and spend a year at least really just grinding it out on the savings front and try to get one year of financial runway in a liquid format that you intend to deploy, Right. Retirement accounts are great. You can contribute to them. They don't count to your financial runway. Because right? you can't access that until you're 65. You can. You can take it. Unless a penalty, you go through the got to be honest with you. I don't think it's a good plan to put money into a retirement account that you intend to use to withdraw on later because you're going to pay a penalty. So the yeah. intention, of, as a matter of fact, with a retirement account is that you're not going to use it. So contribute. I, I still contributed to a 401k mm-hmm. and to my employer match. But my aggression about saving was all about... I use that word a lot. That's too hard of a word. <laughs> but I, but my, my approach really focused on building up my bank account and my after-tax liquidity. Yeah. So I could take a new job or buy a house hack, right?
0: Yeah. Your focus was on that cash because that cash is what you can deploy whenever you want, whether that's to take up a new opportunity or buy that first house hack or investment property or whatever the case may be.
1: Yeah, you don't know what that opportunity is going to look like, and like it's very frustrating. I think for people who are just starting out on this journey of wealth, to being like, I want to be an investor is what everyone wants, right? But if you're talking about twenty five grand, you know that at best in a passive investment, like like an index fund, is going to generate long term average returns of ten percent at best. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty you know high assumption on your yeah. Yeah. So your it's really not meaningful to your position. at at, at that point. So I think that having it in some sort of liquid format, you can put it in the stock market if you want, as long as you intend to withdraw it, just risk that it'll go down before you need it. But having that access to that cash, I think is the most important thing and having the mental mindset of being able to use it. Okay. So we talked about that. That's the first first step is accumulating $25,000. Getting from zero to 25. Yeah. Focus on your big expenses, knock out all the stuff that doesn't make you happy, or that's really important. And you can live a great life. Like. 20% of your expenses, if you're an average American, are going towards entertainment, food, fun, miscellaneous. The 63, 62 thirds of your expenses are going to just three categories, housing, transportation, and food. If you can eliminate or drastically eliminate those three categories, it's very easy to get to a 50% savings rate, especially if you're already at a 10 to 20% savings rate. So how do you live for free? Do you house hack? Can you go into a place, an Airbnb, the bedroom. We rent a two-bedroom house and, tell the, and get, tell the landlord, hey, I'll Airbnb this place and I'll pay you an extra fee if I can do that. There's a lot of ways to get to that very low housing cost in that first year if you are serious about it. Whatever. After you get a one-year <laughs> of financial one way, hopefully that takes you a year, maybe two. Now you're talking about how to get to $100,000 in personal net worth. Okay? You can save your way there. It's just slow to do that in isolation. So, I think you have to f- think about how do I earn more income and how do I generate a significant return? And my two preferred tactics for this are one, finding a job with scalable income potential, like a sales gig. So, if you earn a commission as a salesperson, you can theoretically earn infinite amounts of money. And if you're going to be spending your time all day working, money, working for money um, and you don't particularly love the work that you're doing right now, it seems to me that there's no reason not to pursue a commission-based sales gig, especially if you're spending is very low because <laughs> yeah. you don't need to earn a high base salary if you're spending... Like, let's, like my, my, my case, right? If I'm earning $48,000 a year, I can take a pay... And I spend 20, 25. I can take a pay cut to 30, but with income potential and bonus comm- potential, commission potential of up to hundred grand, That's a great bet for me. It's totally impossible for a peer who's living in downtown Denver and live in the high life (laughs) and spending $43,000 a year.
0: Yeah. By lowering your expenses, you lower the amount of fixed set income
1: that you need to be able to live. Exactly. And then you can pursue an opportunity that has real scalable income potential without the risk, right? It's not a risk. It's an opportunity for the person that spends a little bit of money. It's a risk, not an opportunity that that can't even be considered as an opportunity for the guy who's spending everything he earns. Okay, so that's one tactic. The second tactic is the house hack. We already went over that. You buy the right house hack, you can basically eliminate your entire housing expense uh overnight, not overnight over the course of a couple of months while you' analyze, buy, and then put put tenants in place for the house hack and it's a very powerful tool to get you you started and um, building that. so you do those two things that should accelerate your progress towards that hundred grand, hopefully within one. 12, 18, 24 months following the accumulation of that first 25k. Okay. So you're looking what?
0: Uh, one to three years out now?
1: Yeah, one to three years out from your your starting point, right? Now you now you actually have significant savings rate. You're now you're probably saving three, four thousand dollars a month in cash after taxes, which is a large amount of money and will enable you to put together significant investments over time. Right. Now, okay, now it's time to think about investing right? Investing and getting a 10% return on $100,000 a year or $100,000 invested is a significant amount of money. $10,000 could be a very significant influence in your decision-making about big life choices, which which is important. So now that's why the focus moves to investing. So from there, I kind of have a philosophy about, hey, how do I invest... Aggressively for the long (laughs) term here to generate high returns and two approaches that I talk about. There's plenty more approaches out there, and I don't, you know, this this is one section of the book. But two approaches that I I I suggest as possible areas to explore are index fund investing, plowing your money into an index fund, which is totally passive. There's some volatility risk; the stock market can go up and down in the short term, um, but long term you're likely to get. Close to a ten con- percent compound annual growth rate. Uh, if we're looking, if we, at least if we look at what historical returns have been over the last several, hundred, you know, last hundred years. Yeah. Uh, and then real estate investing is my other component. If you're house hacking, that's a great approach, right? You house hack, you fix a place up, you put tenants in, and you move on to the next one. And you have a portfolio after five, six years of several rental properties that you know intimately and are very mm-hmm. comfortable with managing um, and operating. So that's a great approach. There's a massive return potential there because you're using so much leverage when you own or occupy a house hack. Yeah. Can you define leverage real quick for me? Yeah. So, like my, my duplex, right? I, I bought a duplex, I put down $12,000 on a $240,000 duplex, right? So that means I'm leveraged 20 to 1, right? So I put, I put down 5%, mm-hmm. um, or I guess 19 to 1, somewhere in that range. Um, yeah. Ballpark. So, like if that property, let's say I put down, let's, let's use a simpler thing. Let's say I put down $5,000 on a $100,000 house, right? If that house appreciates 5%, I've just earned a 100% return on my $5,000 initial investment, right? Yep. Plus you get 5,000 out and the 5,000 you put down. That's right. Plus I'm paying down my mortgage one or $2,000. So that is a 40% return if it's $2,000 on my mm-hmm. $5,000 investment. If I'm not paying rent and my rent was $500 a month previously, that's $6,000 right there in savings, right? Because I'm if my cash flow from my tenants is covering my living expenses, right? Yeah. So that's, that's a 120% return, right? Add those up and you've got a serious, serious ROI in an average year on a house hack with a, with a small amount of money invested, right? And your risk, in my opinion, is reasonably low. Now, now that's offset partially by transaction costs, right? So there's buyer transaction costs, and then there's maybe uh, 1% to 2% of the purchase price. And then you've got your loan origination fees, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. the first year is going to be a little bit more muted. Year two should be very strong, right? And so on. But an average year, you're going to have a very explosive ROI that you can't get from stocks or real estate on an, in an average year.
0: Yeah, because the, the 5000 you put down goes
1: farther than any other investment you could find. That's right. And the other part of this is the, um, uh, the risk, right? So with leverage, you, you associate risk, right? Now, mm-hmm. my thing was though, like the long-term risk is rents are going to go up, right? If you're a renter, like, are you, like I would much rather be on the side of the bed that says 30 years from now, rents are going to be higher than they are today yeah most likely i i just like i can't fathom how someone would take the other position on that on a, on a, at least a nominal basis yeah so before before inflation um the next or after inflation sorry okay the 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 next piece is who's at the most risk in the buy the purchase of a first property i say that the person at the most risk in the market is the homeowner who puts down $5000 you know 5% On a primary residence with no potential tenant income, right? That guy is at the most risk because if he loses, he's like likely your the competition, the people who are buying homes, Mm -hmm. are saving five or 10% of their income, got help from mom and dad, or else deposited a decade's worth of liquidity Mm -hmm. as their down payment on a property. And if they lose their job, they are the ones who are gonna get foreclosed on. If you lose your job because you're saving at 50% rate, one, you probably can get another job that's still above your total lifestyle demands. Yeah. And two, you've got tenants that are still going to contribute to the mortgage. Even if the worst should happen in a really down market, your tenants are going to be paying you some rent. Let's say that, let's say that you, you plan, your mortgage is $2,000 and you planned on getting $1,800 from the other side of, of your property. Mm-hmm. Even if that income goes, cuts down by half, you're still getting nine hundred dollars. The homeowner yeah. is not getting anything. Yeah, so who's at more risk here? I think it's the homeowner, um, it, 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 without that's not buying with a, uh, a loan. And I think that the amount of leverage you use is less important than your overall lifestyle. Like your like the percent down that you put mm-hmm. is less important to your long term returns than the amount of cash flow that your property is going to generate and your overall savings rate. Those are your kind of risk redu- reducers there.
0: Yeah. So really it's about putting yourself in a position where you're insulated from these risks. You know, like you're saying, if you own own a primary residence and the market value drops, you're gonna take a personal hit. Whereas if you're renting it out, you still have consistent income coming in that really insulates you. Even if that, you know, there's a haircut on that and you those rents go down a little bit, you still have consistent income coming in and covering your expenses. And so it's another mechanism, uh, you know, that 50% savings rate, building out a house hack, they're all mechanisms for one, building your safety net and building your financial runway, but two, really insulating you from the overall risk that Absolutely. you can't
1: avoid anyways. Yeah. And, and when you start, when you start accumulating two and a half, three, $4,000 a month and after tax liquidity on an ongoing basis i mean there's there's the world is your oyster you have so many opportunities in every different direction right because you just have so much freedom like the freest person in this in the, in this in your city is the guy who's house hacking who has no lease right <laughs> doesn't have you know yeah i guess you have to serve a year Serve a year. It sounds like prison. (laughs) In your house hack, if you get a mortgage because you have like a one-year term on your on your mortgage, after that's like signing a lease though, right? So like you're not at any disadvantage relative to the renter there. And then, you know, after a year, you're the freest person in the city. You can move and rent out your place. You can sell your place. You can stay there as month to month with Mm -hmm. no consequences. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of optionality that comes from being in that position a few years out. And obviously, I'm trying to sell you as listeners on of aggressively pursuing that position with this interview, I think,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, naturally. Um, and so one thing one thing that's important to note that you've really highlighted is that you're not pursuing these saving rates or you're not pursuing this consistent cash flow solely because you want to go out and spend it, or solely because you know you want that money. It's not just pursuing cash for cash's sake, it's pursuing. A good savings rate in, in a financial runway so that you can really do what you want to do and take on new opportunities as they arise and have that flexibility.
1: That, that's 100% right, right? Is, is like, like my, I don't feel like what I just described is a massive lifestyle sacrifice, right? I live in a duplex right now in Denver. I can easily bike to the heart of downtown Denver in about 10 minutes or less. Mm-hmm. I have a paid off Toyota Corolla. 2014. So like, like the the, my housing and transportation expenses are effectively zero. Mm -hmm. I can spend out the wazoo on (laughs) buffalo wings and beer, right? And travel, right? I I, I, and all that, like, like to to fun places and vacations and sporting events and all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't matter because that is still less than most people pay in rent each month, right? Terms of the fun, so like I just I just see it as a, you know I see it as a, as a very clear cut path for me for how to live my life with all this optionality, and because I'm doing that, that allows me to save up very large chunks of money to make truly meaningful investments that can produce meaningful investment income, very consistently, um, over the years, and continuously build a stronger position.
0: Yeah, you're living a little bit smarter so that you can live the fun life that you'd like to. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and a lifestyle sacrifice is not that great. Right? It's, I, think it really, I think that the two kind of major choices from a spending position that will disrupt your situation are the vehicle you drive and how you choose to sleep. If you can make an optimal decision on those two fronts, this can all be very easy.
0: Well, that's, that's a gold nugget right there. I'm excited for that one. <laughs> well, awesome. So as we kind of wrap... Wrap up our conversation here. Um, is there anything that you think is important to note that we haven't really hit on yet?
1: Um, no, I, I mean, I think we covered um, a lot of topics. I'm sure there's a lot of important things to discuss that we haven't got to today, but I think that was. It's a good intro. I got to preach my, my, my stuff, so. <laughs> so
0: everybody wins. <laughs> well, awesome. So, Scott, you are the CEO over at Bigger Pockets. Uh, how can people get a hold of you? Do you have any podcasts or anything that you're a part of?
1: Oh, yeah. You can listen. Oh, so I, where can you find out more about me? All right. So you can come to biggerpockets.com. You can look me up. I have a user profile on the site. Uh, you can check me out on LinkedIn. You can send me an email at scott at biggerpockets.com. You can listen to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, which is available at biggerpockets.com slash money show. Um, I read my book, Set for Life, um, any of those types of things. Uh, are good ways to, to contact me or learn more.
0: Awesome. Well, cool. Uh, thank you for your time. This is a lot of really cool content um, and really important for, for people that are early on in their careers and even looking to line up their careers uh, to hear. So thank you for, uh, for sharing with us.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for putting this together and putting together the show. I appreciate being here.
0: Definitely. righty, Scott, what do you say we get out of here?
1: Let's do it. Sweet. Thank
0: you for your time, man. Take care. And that does it for our show with Scott Trench. Now I really like Scott's story and Scott's overall view of personal finance because it's no nonsense. It's being as aggressive and as targeted as possible. I also highly, highly recommend the book Set for Life. Uh, I've linked to it in the show notes. And it's really been one of the driving forces behind me getting my financial shit together. Scott's approach is to focus on the highest dollar value and highest percentage expenses that we have so that you can still do the fun stuff around the edges. It's not sacrificing you know, everything that you enjoy. It's being a little bit smarter with the highest dollar value expenses that you have so that you can really draft and put together this strong financial position. If you've been watching the show and enjoy it or listening and enjoy it, please do me a favor and just hit the subscribe button. That lets me know uh, how many you are listening regularly and what I can do to improve. From Taste for Tenacity, show number seven. This is Ben Trella. Thanks for listening.